0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, we'll be focusing on Ukraine and Russia. We'll take a look at a week punctuated by the drumbeat of war. It seemed imminent, then less likely, then, well, it's still unclear— We'll examine Russia's quiet but relentless effort to insulate itself in the digital world. And we'll hear from a Ukrainian woman whose life has been upended by all the uncertainty. But
2: first...
1: We are not scared by any scenario. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said this week, we're not afraid of any dates. Days and months are not important. He was referring to intelligence from a week ago, suggesting that an invasion was imminent. Rumors swirled that Wednesday might be the day. In response, America sent 3,000 troops to Poland. The world tensed. But then on Monday, when Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov proposed to Vladimir Putin that diplomacy should continue. They, course, should continue forever, stage... The president said simply, good. Tuesday brought claims of a de-escalation. The
3: Defense Ministry has announced that some units deployed near the Ukrainian border have completed their tasks and are returning to their base.
1: La Russie annonce le the absolutely... retrait de certaines forces
3: armées près de sa frontière avec l'Ukraine border. However, other drills are still underway. Moscow has always denied it has any plans to invade Ukraine.
1: By Wednesday, those claims were in doubt.
3: We have not yet verified the Russian military units are returning to their home bases. Indeed, our analysts indicate that they remain very much in a threatening position.
1: Then yesterday, a sharp rise in tensions near regions in eastern Ukraine that are packed with Russian-backed separatists.
3: Uh, A kindergarten was shelled in uh, what we know as a false flag operation uh, designed to discredit the Ukrainians, uh, designed to create a a pretext, a a, a, a spurious provocation uh, for Russian action.
1: Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, said there was no certainty about Russia's intentions, only about its potential.
3: They have enough uh,
4: troops and enough um, capabilities to launch a full-fledged invasion of Ukraine. With uh, very little or uh, no warning time.
1: And that is... It's also muddled, conflicting, worrisome. So we're speaking with Edward Carr, the economist's deputy editor, and Shishong Joshi, our defense editor. Edward, what to make of, of all of these headlines?
2: I think the really important thing when you're caught up in the to and fro and the inevitable confusion of a build-up to what may well be a war is to stand back a second and just remember how this started. This troop build-up, which is the cause of of all this stress, was completely Vladimir Putin's choice. It's he who has engineered this crisis out of nothing. Now, when you get closer to the moment of crisis, of course, there's to and fro and blame goes either ways, but, but never lose sight of the fact that he is the ultimate architect of this crisis.
1: And Shashank, we are hearing reports of more targeted, more more organised shelling on on the border. What do you make of
0: that? Well, shelling in eastern Ukraine between the Ukrainian government and Russian-backed separatists—you could even call them Russian proxies—that happens a lot, and it always has happened since 2014. But what we're seeing in recent days is much more serious. It's not just the shelling. I think we're seeing a stark change in Russia's tone and its language. For example, in the last few days, we've seen heightened warnings from Vladimir Putin and other officials that there is genocide occurring in eastern Ukraine by the Ukrainian government. That's an extraordinary allegation. It's, of course, completely false. But Russian state media is talking about it. It's talking about the possibility of mass graves in eastern Ukraine that would provide evidence of that genocide, it's a clear sign that Russia is what what officials call preparing the information space. They are softening up public opinion. They are creating the beginnings of a narrative that would fit with an intervention to protect supposedly beleaguered and persecuted Russian-speaking minorities in eastern Ukraine. And these wild and ridiculous claims of genocide, I think, fit exactly into that.
2: And interestingly, the Duma, the, the state parliament in Russia, has petitioned Putin to recognise the independence of the two separatist states in Donetsk and, and Luhansk, And that has an interesting wrinkle because their claim to the size of their states actually extends into area that's currently under Ukrainian control. So he's also, just in the past few days, created a possible tool to extend the claim. And that also could be a, a cause for war.
1: What about causes for de-escalation, though? What's going on with all the diplomacy that might head this off?
2: On the diplomatic track on Thursday, something rather important happened, I think, which was Russia's response to America's proposals about what to do in response to Russia's original demands about NATO and changing the architecture of European security. And Russia had sat on the American response for several days... And it was kind of a test of how willing it was to pursue diplomacy. And they sort of had it both ways. They come back with a blanket rejection of America's response and calling it totally inadequate. At the same time as saying that Blinken, the US Secretary of State and Lavrov, his opposite number in Russia, that they will meet for further talks. But, you know, each time Russia bats away proposals, I think it looks more bleak.
1: And as ever, we're having to speculate as to what's going on in Mr. Putin's mind. But what do things look like for him now? What has he gained in all of this so far?
0: Well, he's gained a few things. He has put himself at the absolute center of European diplomacy. In last weeks, he's been speaking to Boris Johnson, to Viktor Orban, to Emmanuel Macron, to Olaf Scholz of Germany. He is at the very nucleus of efforts to defuse this crisis. So he's proved that Russia matters. In a sense, he has proved Russia isn't just a small economy the size of Italy with nukes. It's a serious player in European security. So there's all that diplomatically. And of course, at home, He has underlined his statesmanship. He has distracted from Russia's economic troubles, and there are many economic troubles. And of course, his repression of opposition figures over the last year or so, which has has effectively smashed all serious opposition inside the country. So those are the wins. But there are also very substantial costs he's incurred in the process of all of that.
1: And Ed, you've just come back from Moscow. What, What do those costs look like?
0: Yes.
2: Well, I think the costs are strategic and and they go kind of right back to Shashank's first point about Putin making Russia the centre of attention. I mean, yes, but it's also made Ukraine the centre of attention and that's galvanised NATO. Diplomatic and military relations between the West and Ukraine are closer than they've ever been. And I think those bonds will endure whatever happens now. I think that's actually been self-defeating
1: and there's always been this question of of how much of this is domestically minded for vladimir putin how how are things looking there
2: as far as his position at home i think that's really interesting because when we were in moscow we found that many people some of them close to um the government or even in the government they really didn't believe that war was coming more importantly they didn't want war to come they thought that war would be really bad for russia And that if Putin chose war, it said something profound and disturbing about the way he wants to take the country. Russia has often been divided between two towers, the the security tower of the Siloviki, the security services, the intelligence services, the military services, and then the technocrats and business people, and more Western-looking crowds who essentially want Russia to thrive. If Putin chooses war, he is rejecting
0: that crowd. They're out. They're finished. And perhaps if I can add one thing to that, when I've been talking to Western officials in the last week or so, there's a a tangible sense that you know, when when they look at the war plans that they are seeing, they say these are not plans that any of us would look at and say this looks reasonable, but that Mr. Putin is willing to incur substantial costs. In Britain, defense intelligence says he's willing to incur thousands of casualties to get what he wants. Other Western security sources say he is willing to entertain an occupation of Ukraine, which many people would look at a map of Ukraine and say that's completely insane. And there are worries, I think, even that this could be very destabilizing for his regime if it goes wrong over the medium term.
1: And what about the power of the international community to change the arithmetic here? There has been talk of sanctions and, and just how much uh, pressure could be put on Mr. Putin for for months now.
2: As far as we can tell, the design of sanctions is much more ambitious than it was after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and then Backed separatists who took Donbass. So these are much more ambitious sanctions, whether they target the three biggest Russian banks or the payments network, the economy will be hit reasonably hard. If there are tech restrictions on on imports, that could have an effect similar to the one on Huawei. And and all of this is in spite of the fact that Russia's attempted to build something of of a fortress economy over the past few years. And you do see some Russian officials saying, look, we managed fantastically in 2014. Our cheese industry is better than it's ever been. Well, I can speak from experience. Russia's cheese industry is better, but the rest of the economy isn't. And it'll be in trouble, I think.
1: And what about the, the risks to Ukraine here, beyond the obvious? How does how do things look from there?
0: Well, they had been trying to play down what they saw as Western war hysteria. And it's easy to see why, because their economy has taken a hit Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, has said the government there might need to spend up to $5 billion to stabilize the economy. Ukraine is under serious and sustained threat, and it's already destabilizing the country. But on the whole, I think it has held firm. And the country has, I think, probably found a new spirit of unity, a spirit of nationalism. And it's affirmed the idea its destiny lies with the West.
1: So if Ukraine then is so firm in its purpose, it sounds as if the way to, to think about how all of this is now going to go is is to ask how firm the West's purpose will be, how united its response will be to all of this.
2: Yes, and I, I think that it has been pretty united so far. And I guess my sense about unity will partly be a, a function of how aggressive a Russian attack is, even when it, it comes. And the, the more aggressive, the more united. I think, in a funny way, Putin, who started all this, has, has now put himself in a bit of a corner, really. You know, if he does nothing, I think he will look like a paper tiger. But if he does attack, I think a small war does nothing for him. And a big war comes with, you know, potentially enormous costs. So this is something that Putin has chosen. This is his project. And just now, I don't see how he comes out of it ahead.
1: Edward Shishong, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Jason.
0: Thanks for having us on, Jason.
3: Hi, this is Matt
0: and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation.
1: For months, a central question about Russia's menacing of Ukraine was what form that eventual aggression might take. In particular, if a massive cyber attack to cripple Ukraine's infrastructure might be a bloodless first move. But there's more going on than Russia's offensive digital capabilities. It's been building its own insular digital world as a form of defense. President Vladimir Putin has said that the West invented internet technologies, and so can use them to spy and to store information.
3: <laughs> he goes
1: on to say that we should create segments that don't depend on anyone.
3: President Putin, what he's trying to do is create a sovereign digital space, a space he can control. That's increasingly called stack building.
1: Ludwig Siegeler is our European business editor.
3: A stack there is kind of a collection of related technologies, and that includes semiconductors or technology. That's one layer, software, hardware. And on top, you can have applications or services. It also includes kind of the infrastructure of, of a digital state or a digital economy, identity management systems, payment services, and the like.
1: But in a sense, lots of countries have their own tech stacks, don't they?
3: Correct. America acquired its own technology stack just by the fact that it is home to the biggest technology companies. The European Union wants to be the digital super regulator of the world. So it's trying to build a kind of more open stack, a more human-centric stack. Then, of course, there is China. And China has been building its technology stack since basically the beginning of the Internet there. So it has created what's called the Great Firewall, which is kind of a big filter that controls the traffic coming in uh, to China and going out. So kind of the the original stack builder, I should say, that is China. So if Russia succeeds in what it is doing, other countries uh, may take the cue and do pretty much the same thing. So basically do a great firewall and and, uh, build a stack on the cheap.
1: But it's more than just building a wall. The stack you describe is a lot more than just sort of encircling it all. What does Russia have in the way of this stack so far?
3: So when you kind of observe what's happening in Russia, you get these bits of news like uh, VK, which is one of the biggest social media companies in Russia, being taken over by Gazprom or a new record fine being imposed on Alphabet, $98 million. And Russia is also blocked Tor, which is a service used by a lot of Russians to mask their online activity. So here, again, you have another bit of news that shows that they're trying to clamp down, trying to gain more control of the information flow within their borders. But when you
1: say building, what what do you mean? What have they actually built?
3: One important push is import substitution. So the idea there is to replace Western technology with Russian ones. So most uh, Russian companies use Western technologies, Western ships, Western corporate software, if you want to be really sovereign in the IT or tech industry, you need to make your own semiconductors. And that's what Russia is trying to do by basically having Russian companies design uh, semiconductors. problem, of course, is they all are still being made in Asia, mostly by TSMC, which is a Taiwanese company, the biggest uh, contract manufacturer or foundry of uh, semiconductors.
1: Okay, so building out all of these different parts of the stack ultimately leads up to an attempt to control information. How is Russia doing on that score?
3: So in uh, 2019, Russia amended a number of laws forcing internet service providers to install what's called middle boxes. And these middle boxes are basically filters and they use a technology, deep packet inspection, which is a way to identify where certain packages are coming from, let's say from Twitter or from Facebook. And that allows them to block certain packages they don't like. Already in 2015, like other uh, countries, Russia has passed uh, certain data localization laws which force foreign providers of online services to keep personal data from Russians in Russia. That, that's one thing. There's another thing, which is that foreign companies like Facebook or Twitter, they have to have a local presence and office in Russia and there are other leaders the government can pull. But to my mind, the the really important layer of the stack is government services. The infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, uh, uh, a digital economy needs, that's what uh, Russia wants to control and build out.
1: So you, you think the most important part here is essentially putting government services online and, and controlling all of that?
3: What I found surprising is how well-built out uh, the e-government services in Russia are. I mean, they're called gususlugi, that's uh, uh, Russian for state services. You can get your weapons license, you can apply for a new passport, everything online. But that, I mean, these government services, as I said, is not the only foundational service a digital state needs. Another one is identity and uh, biometric identity. So increasingly, you will encounter if you're there, uh, facial recognitions in Moscow. If you take the subway, uh, you pay with your face. They have said that they will use uh, facial recognition in uh, schools to check uh, attendance and other stuff. And a third service, which is interesting in Russia, is is the Mir payment card and the network which which goes with that. And uh, that came about because of sanctions against Russian banks in the wake of uh, its annexation of. And so it's built out this layer, this service, this infrastructure is actually quite advanced, uh, more advanced again than in in some Western European countries.
1: And we heard from Edward earlier that the sanctions being discussed now in the West will be really severe. Do do you think that what Russia has in place already would help it resist whatever sanctions are coming?
3: That's the attempt. I mean, Russia, you have to be a bit careful, kind of they're always rather ambitious in their industrial policy or policy in general. And you have to always take that with a huge amount of salt because the reality is very often different. Uh, That said, I think it it has made strides. And what will happen if it invades Ukraine and is is hit by sanction? I think NATO will go after its stack. So I I wouldn't be surprised if they implement a sanction to keep Russia from getting uh, important technology, in particular semiconductors. So in that sense, uh, Russia's stack is quite vulnerable to sanctions.
1: So is that to say the, the the rules of engagement the the rules of the international order need to change given these kinds of independent digital worlds
3: with nation states the Westphalian nation states the physical world was in the mass of land and you had borders around it and you protected that and here with the stack you have borders on each layers you want to defend. So in a way, we have to replace this old notion of the Westphalian state with something new, with with a stack or whatever the best expression is, and also think about it differently. And Russia is a very, very good example for that.
1: Ludwig, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.
1: The relentless focus on the Ukrainian conflict at a high level, international diplomacy and tracking troop movements and technological isolationism, has left the feeling on the ground in Ukraine among ordinary citizens largely unexamined. Our correspondents have been telling me that many Ukrainians don't believe there's a real threat from Russia. Yet for plenty of them, the threat couldn't be more real. So what to do? Pack up and leave? Barricade the house and wait? Disaster planning can only go so far, and what happens when, day after day, the disaster looms but doesn't come?
4: Sometimes, looking back at the history, I feel like this will never end. Ukraine, through all of its history, has been in between West and East.
1: Liza is a 26-year-old Ukrainian woman who had been living in the capital, Kiev. She's been speaking with our sister magazine, 1843.
4: Ukraine is a battlefield historically and I'm fed up with that and sometimes I think this will never end. When I realized there is a danger in December 2021, I, I started training like like a soldier. I was taking cold showers, waking up early, working out, then just doing my day job Uh, researching, like, how to do first medical aid. I was thinking, how can I deal with it? How can I help? I quickly realized that there is nothing I can do against 100,000 trained Russian soldiers. So I started making plans on how do I take care of my family. I bought guns for them, and I got some cash and food. And while I was stocking that all up, they were asking questions like, Oh, why did you buy guns? Why do you need that much food? Why do you need that cash? Because I wanted them to see that I'm hiding it so they know it exists so they know where to find it, but they genuinely would not understand why am I doing that. Having a proper conversation with them was impossible. I was still trying to convince them somehow for two weeks, which didn't end well. Like, we were just arguing a lot, so I... Gave up eventually, and I was just trying to, like, be with them and enjoy this last week um, with my family without talking about anything. I realized that they would not try to escape until it's too late. And when it is too late, there is nothing I can do. I would just be a liability, so... I made this decision to go by myself. Nothing happened when I went on a plane. It was just a normal day. I was leaving. Nobody really knew why I was leaving. I didn't tell anything to my friends. My, only my mom knew. I arrived to this country... In Eastern Europe nearby to Ukraine told the custom officer that I'm here just to visit for a few weeks which is not a lie, then I'll just go somewhere else, now I have to keep moving Life here is normal, I'm used to traveling and I'm used to being in different cultures so I just try to meet local people try to learn more about the culture. It's a lot more harder this time because my mind is in Ukraine. Even if Russia invades, even if they win, they will not be able to change Ukrainian mindset. This new crisis gives Ukrainians yet another chance to understand who they are, to build this national identity. But just like with the revolution that happened almost 10 years ago, I know that this is for the better. I might be overly optimistic, but I do feel good about the future, both my future and future of Ukraine. I feel like this is Russia's last battle
1: all for this episode of the intelligence for all of our daily ukraine coverage including this week's cover story go to economist.com slash ukraine crisis that's ukraine hyphen crisis the show's editors this week are marguerite howell kim giddleston and chris impey our senior producers are stevie hertz sam westron jack gill and john joe devlin our producers are william warren rory galloway and alizé jean baptiste our sound engineer is will rowe we'll see you back here on monday